When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we go through this passage. Lord, help me as I attempt to to, uh, teach this, explain this passage. Lord, help it to to be uh, effective. And again, Lord, anytime we encounter your word, we ask that your spirit would form a change in our hearts and teach us something that we need now or in the future. In your name we pray, amen. The passage we just read, this uh, Psalm 77, is uh, one of approximately 50 uh, psalms of lament or complaint found in the book of Psalms. That's, that's one-third of an entire book that most of us probably think of when we think of the Psalms. What do we think of? Things like thanksgiving and praise. But one-third of this entire book is devoted to this idea of lament or complaint. And, and so the important, that alone should tell us this is an important subject, right? The, the one-third, 33% of an entire book given to this one idea of lament. It tells us something about its importance, and not just its importance, but its, its, its ever-present reality in our lives. Uh, some of these... Uh, Psalms of Lament are corporate in nature. That is, they're, 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 it's the whole nation of Israel uh, crying out uh, in complaint or lament to God. Uh, they're a communal prayer of lament. This one, though, is part of the majority of them are like this, and this is a personal prayer of lament uh, by the psalmist Asaph. We don't know what the exact situation is. That, that would, in some ways, that's always nice when we can understand the whole situation around the psalm, and it gives us some uh, gives us some insight into into why why the psalmist is lamenting. Many of the psalms of lament that David wrote, we know like what what was going on in his life and why he wrote it. He was being chased by King Saul, or and so that gives us sort of helps us with our historical picture of what was going on. We don't have that here. Uh, one one commentator. I thought that possibly this was around the time of the destruction of Samaria, uh, some sort of national calamity. Um, but, but whatever the situation was that was driving this lament, we don't know what the particular was, particular situation was, but it's clearly individual in nature. We know that much. And it's also clearly in response to some severe and extended time of difficulty. This is not um, even just stub his toe. I mean, this is something really serious, something heavy and weighty that's happening. I think that Obviously, the whole Bible is intentional, right? I mean, but I think even not knowing the specific nature is, is intentional here. It keeps us maybe, I don't want to project what I, how I work on you, but in my mind, sometimes if you know exactly what the situation is surrounding something, maybe there's a tendency to, to write it like, well, that's not my situation, so I'll, you know, this isn't really for me. I think this is intentionally general, and it prevents us from seeing the, the meaning of applying it too narrowly. And, and missing the application for our own lives. What, what I believe God gives us here through, through the psalmist Asaph is a, the proper manner of dealing with a time of extended difficulty. One of those times it seems like it's never going to end. Times when God seems from our perspective here to
to be silent, to be unconcerned with our despair. And in this song, what we, what we have here, we see two means, Asaph gives us these two means for dealing with, with a time of severe and extended trial. And first of all, we'll see in verses 1 through 9, the first, the first of the two means is to admit your doubts. And the second, we'll find in verses 10 and following, 11 and following actually, is to acknowledge your deliverer. So in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 77, we see the first of these two means for facing a time of extended trial, that is to admit your doubts. Now, uh, maybe you're, you may or may not be familiar with this whole idea of postmodernism. So maybe when I say admit your doubts, um, if you're familiar with postmodern thought, you might think, well, you know, I'm about to go on some rant on how great it is to, to revel in your doubts and we can't know anything uh, for sure and there really is no objective truth and that's not what I'm saying. It, it, erase that from your minds. If, if when I say admit your doubts, that's where your mind goes because that's not what we're going to talk about. You need to hear, hear me out. Now, maybe I may be saying that and nobody is, is thinking that, but I want to make sure you understand that I'm not saying anything along those lines. That's not what I intended, certainly not what the psalmist intends. For most of us, though, the problem is not that we admit our doubts too much. Rather, in practice, we adhere to this philosophy that says, I have to be tough in this trial, or I must uh, maintain a stiff upper lip through my pain. And that sounds good, right? And if you frame that correctly, it can even sound very spiritual. I'm going to be tough, and I'm going to stand up to this. But I think we're making a mistake when we have that kind of attitude. That, that kind of an attitude belongs with the arrogant and the Stoics. It doesn't belong to one who is a true follower of the, the true God. As followers of God, we know something about, about him, and that is that he knows everything. If we have doubts in our heart, he knows them. Whether or not we admit them to him, whether or not we face up to them, he knows what's in our heart. And when we refuse to admit those doubts before him, we're either acting as if we don't believe that he knows everything, or we're showing that we, we really don't know him. And in either case, God's not impressed by yours or my efforts at intestinal fortitude and our refusal to be honest before him. What we see in these first nine verses is a proper way to go about dealing with these doubts and times of severe trial. There, and, and don't be mistaken, there's a proper way and an improper way to do this. Look at, look at first here at verse 1 in chapter 77. The importance of these first few words, we, we can't overstate the importance of these first few, few words here. Twice he says this. He says, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. That's unquestionably for emphasis, right? I mean, he says that two times. And, and what, what, what we see here in, these, in this opening, the opening words of this psalm is this entire psalm is prayer. This isn't some inward discussion with himself or complaining to, to a friend or somebody close to us about what's going on. He has taken his doubts and he's going directly to God. This is a Godward, passionate, emphatic prayer. As, and, and furthermore, this, is, this prayer is a faithful, believing prayer because he says later on in the same verse, he will hear me. Now, he might hear me. He will hear me. He's, a, he's sure that God is going to hear his prayer. He's struggling, and we're going to see that in these, in these next few verses. But his first action in admitting his doubt is to appeal to his God in the firm belief that he's going to be heard. You don't have to, I'm sure you guys have either been through a trial or seen people go through a trial. You don't have to look 
very far. Even on, you can see these things when they happen on TV to people. How they deal with these things improperly. What do they do? They, they accuse God. How, how dare God do this? They rail against him. They, they cry out in anger against him. But we don't see any of that in our psalm here. All we have is a heartfelt, believing prayer to God. After this emphatic cry in, in verse 1, you see in verses 2 through 3 that, that Asaph is, is admitting his doubt. He seeks the Lord. At the beginning of verse 2, we get a glimpse of just how severe Asaph's trial is. He says, in the day of my trouble, and that word, that word trouble is it's not a bad translation at all, but it doesn't necessarily get to the heart how deep and severe this is. The, the word that's translated in the NASB, it's translated affliction. This isn't some mere difficulty. This word would have been used um, by, if you've ever, uh, you guys who are in the medical field, if you've ever seen a woman in labor, right? I've seen it six times. Um, and, and this this word would have been used of a woman in, in the in the just the pains of that of that first labor. Now that's what the lexicon said as I looked the word up. But I'll tell you this: whether it's the first labor or the sixth, and I think Caroline would agree with me, they're all mighty painful. At least I mean I haven't suffered through it, but that's that's what it appears to be from my end. The other way, and, and maybe this for for the guys here, and and, and you know, those of you who haven't experienced childbirth. Um, this might maybe lock this idea home a little more. They would have used this word that's translated affliction or trouble at the at the feeling um, a city would have felt at the at the, on, the approach of an oncoming army that was bent on the rape and the destruction of that city. I mean, we're talking abject terror, right? This is this is not some small insignificant thing. So we we see the word trouble, and perhaps it doesn't really drive home. For us, exactly what Asaph's going through. This is a severe, severe trial. And it's in this severe, almost unimaginable terror that Asaph is seeking the Lord. You see that he seeks the Lord persistently. He says, my hand is stretched out without wearying in the second part of verse 2. He's praying constantly. He also seeks the Lord singly. He's not, he's not going to settle for mere distraction from his trial. He says... Again, at the end of verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. Uh, we're, so we're guilty as many times in, in, the, in the course of a, a difficulty. And maybe it's a difficulty that's as severe as Asaph's or not. But we find our comfort in distraction, right? We want to maybe turn on the TV or read a book or call a friend. And we allow ourselves just to be distracted enough to take our mind off the problem. Asaph was not going to do that. Right, he is seeking the Lord. He's seeking Him persistently. He is not going to be comforted by any mere trifle. Right? He, he is going to be, he's going to get to the heart of the matter here. So he seeks the Lord persistently and singly. But as we see in verse 3, even this activity that, that would should bring peace, right? Seeking the Lord diligently, devotedly, that that should bring peace, right? Well, that, that would be where our minds might go. But even that serves only to further his feelings of being troubled and weak. He says in verse in verse three, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So why does he feel this way at remembering God? Well, look at verse four. Who is the one that is troubling him? God, right? He says in verse four, "You hold my eyelids open." He's seeking God, but he remains troubled because God is the one who's keeping him from rest. He is the one who's holding his eyelids open. And I, I love the Hebrew. 
That'd be very easy just to say, keep me awake, right? But uh, the idea of just literally keep holding his eyes open. He wants to sleep, but he can't. God is preventing him from sleep. And he's, he's troubled so much that he can't even talk. I mean, can, can you hear the doubt swirling in Asaph's mind and in his heart? He's crying to God, right? He knows he's being heard. He, that he clearly states that in verse 1. He's seeking the Lord fully. I mean, he is, he is, he is going after God to, to find an answer. And still God troubles him. But, but why? Why that doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit. And I think by the end of the psalm, perhaps we'll understand why God would do such a thing. At this point, many of us would give up seeking the Lord. And he's not, answer, not only not answering, but he's, he's continuing to trouble. And, and probably, I would say it's almost doubtless that many people have given up. But Asaph is not a quitter. Spurgeon says this, and I'm a fan, by the way, because of it. <laughs> Spurgeon says this, He did not cease from introspection, speaking of Asaph, for he was resolved to find the bottom of his sorrow and trace it to its fountainhead. He made sure work of it by talking not with his mind only, but with his inmost heart. It was heart work with him. He was no idler, no melancholy trifler. He was up and at it, resolutely resolved that he would not tamely die of despair, but would fight for his hope to the last moment of his life. In verses 5 and 6, Asaph continues this wrestling match with doubt, and, and he follows an interesting progression. If you look at those verses, he says, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. He considers, you see that in verse, in verse 5, he remembers, he meditates, and finally he searches. Asaph begins by calling to mind the things that had come before, that had happened in the years past. And these are memories that had always brought him comfort before. And then he says this in verse 6, which is an interesting state. He says, let me remember my song in the night. He remembers his song. Now what, what the song is, we don't know exactly. This is interesting to me, though. Um, shortly before I preached this message from my, my preaching lab, I was reading in Deuteronomy. Let, let's, we've got some time. Let's look over there real quick at Deuteronomy 31. say this definitively. Um, we don't know specifically what the song is, but there, there's certainly we'll see this as we finish looking at the rest of the, of the uh, passage. We'll see traces of this song. There was a fact, look at the Deuteronomy 31 verse 19. God, the, Moses is toward the end of his uh, time, right? He's, he, he's getting ready to die. In verse 19, God tells Moses, says, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. And 32, chapter 32 is the content of that song that Moses was teaching them. What's my point? I, I, I don't want to say this is the song, but it'll be, it'll be interesting. You'll see that there are reflections of this song throughout this psalm we're studying. 
And this was a song that Moses, God told Moses to teach the children of Israel why. The whole, if you if you take the time, we were not going to take the time to read the whole of Deuteronomy 32, but the, the psalm was all about God's working and how the children of Israel will rebel and have rebelled and, and how the God will spurn them for a time and then bring, take them back. And there's a whole, it's all about the working of God. And, and God had told Moses to teach this to the children of Israel. Why? Because at some point they, they would just pass us on. In fact, this song would resonate in their minds when things began to happen, when bad things began to happen, when they started to see the judgment of the Lord, that this song would resonate in their minds and they would remember. They wouldn't forget what God had done. And music, wouldn't you agree, is a very powerful, very powerful uh, tool of remembering. So I, I think perhaps this this may be the song that, that Asaph remembered. Maybe not. In any case, whatever the song was, Asaph believed that remembering that song would aid him in his current struggle. So after calling the events of the past to mind and remembering his song, what does he do next? In verse 6, he meditates on these things. And all of this leads him to this statement at the end of verse 6, which is very important. He says, then my spirit made a diligent search. And it's this search that Spurgeon was referring to when he spoke of Asaph's heart work. Asaph's diligent search after calling past events to mind, remembering his song, and meditating results in the questions that we see in verses 7 through 9. And at first, if you, as we read through this, and maybe, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, hopefully you're not, but if you're like me, you read these, and, and you, these questions that he is firing off sound almost impertinent. Um, he, he's, he seems to be asking God, will you spurn forever? Will you never again be favorable? Has your steadfast love forever ceased? Are your promises at an end forever? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Have you in anger shut up your compassion? They, they sound, if, if I asked them that way, they almost sound impertinent, right? How dare you ask God if he's forgotten something? But remember, Asaph's, Asaph's searching, right? And searching involves questions. And if you understand these in their context, they're not angry entreaties. They're not arrogant demands for answers. Really what they are is they're rhetorical questions. Asaph's talking to himself. He's searching his own spirit. These rhetorical questions each have the same answer, which is no. Let's look at these questions uh, individually for a second. The first one, will the Lord spurn forever? And here's one of those echoes I was talking about from that song that, that Moses taught the children of Israel. In verse 19 of chapter 32, Moses speaks of God spurning his people. Now the psalmist would have known whether it's from this song, this song, or other places in the scriptures that they had at that point, that God does occasionally reject or spurn. It's not out of His character to do so. But what He would know is this: this rejection will not be forever. Asaph would have known that. Lamentations 3:31, which is written, I believe, by Jeremiah, says this: that the Lord will not cast off forever. So the answer is, as Asaph asked this question, will the Lord spurn forever would have come back to it. The answer would have come back to his mind immediately would have been what? No, no, this can't be. Will the Lord never again be favorable? Psalm 147, verse 11 and 149, verse 4, among other verses, say that God takes pleasure in his people. And the Hebrew word that's translated there, takes pleasure, is the same word translated here, favorable. In our song, God by nature takes pleasure and is favorable towards his people. 
again, the answer to this question in Asaph's mind is an implied no. And then this third question, has his steadfast love forever ceased? And, a, and an affirmative answer to this question is absolutely unfathomable. I, I know probably you may or may not have heard this word before. The Hebrew word, though, is kesed. Have you guys ever heard that word? I'm trying to think if I've ever talked about it in the Sunday school class. That's a really important word in the Old Testament. It's found throughout. And the idea is, is it refers to God's loyalty, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his loving kindness. This is a key characteristic of God. It's, it is very important. And for, it, it's just absolutely unfathomable that God would set off a part of himself like this, his kesed, his, his steadfast love forever. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love, the, that's the exact same word, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The next question is, are his promises at an end for all time? Literally, if you translate this literally word for word, it would be, has his word come to an end forever? Again, the answer to this rhetorical question, no. Joshua says in verse chapter 23, verse 14, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he forgotten this foundational element of himself, his grace? Nehemiah 9.31 states this. It says that God is a gracious and merciful God. Can God forget himself? <clears throat> No, right? So the answer again is God forgot to be gracious and emphatic. No. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Again, we can look at the, at the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22, at the end of that verse, and we know that his mercies or his compassions never come to an end. So the answer again to this final question is an implied no. Asaph poured out his heart to God in the verses so far, and he sought the Lord in prayer. He's been honest in telling God what God already knows. And he's searched his heart by asking questions about the very nature of God and whether God can change. With the answer to each of those questions that we looked at being an implied no. And now we come to this, this verse 10. This is the pivot verse, the pivot point for the entire song. If you include the heading, which says to the choir master, according to Jonathan, a song of Asaph, if you include that as verse 1, which the, the Hebrew Bible does, by the way, those are the majority of those are part of the inspired text. If you include that as verse 1, what we have here in verse 10 is the exact middle of the psalm. There are 10 verses that precede it, starting with the, the header and going down to verse 9. And there are 10 verses that follow it from verse 11 to verse 20. Now, I, I, I love symmetry. So that's sort of, that, that's, I love that. I love the fact that there's, 10 verses, 10 verses, we have a dead middle. That, that really, that really uh, I just love that. But along with being this, the middle point of the psalm, this verse, of, of all the verses of the psalm, was the most difficult to translate. There, believe it or not, it's not a long verse, but there are some uh, tricky words in there. And, and I believe, in this case, the, the uh, King James Version renders this probably the best of all the translations. I don't want to bother you with it, bore you with it. All the nuts and bolts of that. I can tell you if you want to talk to me afterward about it, I'd be happy to find it by you. But the King James Version renders this verse this way. And I said, this is my infirmity. 
but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And, and, the, and the reason that is, there are a couple of words in there that are two different words look the exact same, and so you can take you can take either one one way or the other, and so it's a little bit tricky. But I think what what's going on here, we have the dead middle of the song. The first half of the verse is really dealing with everything that's come before, right? Everything up to this point is the psalmist or Asaph's affliction, his infirmity. And everything that's going to come after this is is opened up in the second half of this verse where he says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And even that probably bears a little bit of ex- explanation when he says the right hand of the Most High. I mean, does God have a literal right hand? No, there's a big word, I'm not going to tell you. But this is ascribing sort of a human characteristic to God to help us understand sort of what that is. When it, anytime you see in the in the Old Testament what God's right hand is referred to, what it's referring to is the strength, of, the strength of God, the control that God has. And so that's what's being referred to. He's going to remember the years of the of the of the strong working of God and the powerful working of God. So not obviously you didn't think that was a literal right hand, but that's that's the idea that's being conveyed there. So the first half of verse 10, he's he's referring to what has been written in verses 1 through 9. All what has preceded this verse is his affliction, it's his piercing, it's his hurt. But the second half of this verse is set in contrast to the first. Asaph's expressing now his great hope, which is what? The years of the right hand of the Most High. Everything that's occurred up to this point has been all about his hurt. But these, these questions he asks in verses 7 through 9 have led him to the realization that he has to remember, he must remember the strong arm of God. So verses 1 through 9, we saw that the, the first means for dealing with a time of severe crisis or trial is to acknowledge your doubts. And now in verses 11 through 20, we see the second means, which is to acknowledge your deliverer. So the psalms reach this tipping point. Through the use of his rhetorical questions, we see that if we want to be free of doubts and despair, we must acknowledge our deliverer. We do this first by remembering who God, what God has done, and secondly, by remembering who he is. Verses, let's read again verses 11 and 12. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. It's interesting there are four mere synonyms used to describe the acts of the Lord. And, and when you read this, some, sometimes, again, I hate to say we we think this because you may not think the same way. But sometimes when you read these, you see like this, it seems like a similar word be used over and over. You just sort of breeze over it and think maybe you're almost bothered by it. Why use you know four words when you could use one? But, but the fact is that each one of these has a unique meaning. And then each, there's a coupling in each verse at 11 and 12. And you, what you have is a generic word term, with, and, and it's coupled with one that's more specifically divine. In verse 11, you see this, the word deeds. He says, I'll remember the deeds. And that's a generic term. That It's just a generic term for works that's related to whatever the Lord does, his actions. But, but the second word, translated wonders, is Every time it's used in the Old Testament, with the exception of one time in Lamentations 1.9, it's always used in connection with the acts of the Lord. While deeds is used can be used as a general, anybody can uh, do deeds, right? This word 
translated wonders is used specifically of what God does. And in verse 12, we have another coupling. This, this, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And that word work refers basically to, to God's general working throughout history. He's always, uh, Josh and I were talking about this this morning, God is always working throughout history. We don't necessarily see it directly, but he's, he's always always intervening. He is all, there's not like a time where he steps in, he's involved in everything. And that's that's the idea here in the first part of verse 12. While the, the second the second uh, word there, the second couple of words there, mighty deeds, that's a, that's a specific reference to direct obvious, overt acts of God. Not only are, does there seem to be some of that repetition and what it is that God, that he's remembering or pondering, but even what it is a psalmist is doing, there seems to be some repetition, right? You see at 11, I will remember, I will remember, and then verse 12, I will ponder, and then we could, you know, I will meditate, the I wills imply the second time. But e- even that, there's there's some difference in what's going on there. It's not just that that's intentional. It's not it's not just uh, literary. There's a reason for it. And in verse 11, the same Hebrew word is used both times. The, the remember, same word both times. And that, that means simply to remember, to dwell, to think on. It has, uh, there's really not a verbal component to that so much. But the words translated in, in verse 12, where it says, I will ponder and meditate, while they, they do carry that same idea of think about, dwell on, they also care, have a verbal component to them. Uh, the idea of muttering or, or speaking. So, so what's what's Asaph getting at here? Why use these different words to describe the actions of God and, and different verbs to describe how he deals with them, how he remembers them, and what he does about those? I, I think what he's doing here is show there's a, a broad range to God's actions. There's the things we don't necessarily see, and then there's these these very overt acts, and, and they all, God can do all of those things. It's a, it's a broad range of things. And our reaction to those needs to be not just to think about them, that's very important, but also to talk about them. So from verses 11 and 12, we learn that we acknowledge our deliverer by remembering the breadth of what he's done, and not just thinking about what he's done, but speaking of those things as well. Finally, and most importantly, we acknowledge our deliverer by remembering who he is. In verses 13 to 20, Asaph gives us four descriptions of who God is. He is holy, he is wonderful, he is a redeemer, and he is a shepherd. The first half of verse 13 here states that God's way is holy. It's a part, and that, that idea, you understand what that word holy means, right? It's being separated from, totally different, apart from. And his way is apart, it's sacred, it's separated, it's separated from all defilement. And, and it's not just God's way that's holy. The second half of verse 13 tells us that God himself is holy and set apart by asking, again, one of these rhetorical questions, what God is great like our God? With the obvious answer implied there isn't one, right? Again, there's a there's a, there's a a reflection of this uh, from Deuteronomy 32, 39, that psalm, song we talked on earlier where God says, see now that I am he and there is no God besides me. So not only is God holy. We see that in verse 13. God is wonderful. Verse 14 tells us that he is the God who works wonders and makes his might known among his people. For reasons known only to him, 
a God who is apart and separate, separated from us and holy, he, he deigns to show his wonders to his people. And to go even further, we see in verses 15 through 19 that God is a redeemer. The psalmist begins in verse 15 by stating that God redeemed his people and goes on in verses 17 to 19 to deal uh, detailed specific ways in which God did this. Verses 16 and 19, they, they seem to deal pretty clearly with the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and the Jordan in Joshua 3. And verses 17 and 18 appear to possibly refer to the seventh plague of Exodus 9. And while the details, these, these are very interesting, we could you know go and read, I, I love to read about the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan. In fact, just recently as I read through that again, I was sharing with Caroline how I always pictured um, when the when the Israelites crossed the Jordan that it was like to a nice little path, right? Remember the, the priest stepped into the water and the water stopped and then the whole nation went across. I, I had a picture in my mind of like, you know, a million people single file, you know, walking across the, the dry the dry spot. But I guess I just never read that passage carefully, but it went the, the waters back all the way up to a city called Adama, which is far, far north of where they were at. We're talking about, I mean, and it would have stopped all the way down to the to the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea. I mean, it would have been completely dry. Uh, so they walked across en masse across a dry riverbed. A miraculous event, no? I mean, that, that's, that's pretty incredible. The point of the author in his brief recounting of this, right, because he doesn't spend a lot of time. He just, he talks about the while the waters saw God and they were afraid and the deep trembled. And I love those those verses we talked about God's arrows. That's obviously lightning flashed on every side. What's his point? Why is he why does he even bring those things up? I think, I think it's pretty clear to me that what he's what he's showing us is that God controls even the base elements of nature, right? Whether it's rivers or seas, lightning, hail, God controls all of those things in order to redeem His people. And there's a little statement here. It's nestled. Uh, between Asaph's statement of God as a redeemer and God as a shepherd is found at the end of verse 19. And if we're not careful, we could just read right over that uh, without really thinking about it. He says this. Uh, he says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And then he throws this little, this little statement there, yet your footprints were unseen. This is a really a powerful statement on the part of Asaph about how well he knew God. What's, it, what's he saying here? Why throw that? in here. I think what he's saying is God's redeeming work isn't always evident at the time it happens. You can't always see what he's doing, but in retrospect, as he looks back on these events, he knows that it's God who did it. That God was the one redeeming. God was the one in control. That's an important statement. I mean, we don't, so many times we're in the middle of our affliction, in the middle of an incredibly difficult time, and we can't see we can't see God working, right? It's not clear. We don't we don't see his footsteps walking beside us. We don't see his hand working. But that never changes the fact that he is in control and he is doing something as he continues to redeem us. In verse 20, Asaph concludes this description of who God is with the language of shepherding. And I, that's, I, that's obviously intentional. Uh, what a, what a, a neat picture of God as our shepherd. And he knows that while the human instruments that God used, as he expresses here, were Moses and Aaron, 
the true shepherd at all times was God. He was the one that was leading his people like a flock. By Asaph's example here in verses 10 through 20, then we, we understand that we acknowledge our deliverer by remembering and speaking of what he has done and by remembering who he is. At the end of the psalm, by the way, even as every time I read this, I feel this way. It sort of seems abrupt. Did it feel abrupt to you guys when we read it? Maybe they, it feels like it just sort of, like there should be more. We, we need to tail off a little more. And he just sort of, he just sort of stops and, and it's what seems like the middle of a thought. It doesn't have a real nicely wrapped up conclusion. It just sort of tails off the, the statement that God, God is this picture of God as a shepherd and just sort of tails off. There's a, a teacher at our at seminary. He, he's written a book, by the way, and I'm not sure if you can get it on Amazon or not. <clears throat> it's called Roadmaps to the Psalms. His name is Dr. Zemek. And if you can pick that up if you're interested in studying the Psalms, it's a, it's a very helpful book. He says this regarding the end of the end of this psalm. He says, The rather abrupt ending of the psalm leaves the impression that there is at least one more stage in one's dealings with doubt, continuing to walk by faith in view of who God is and what he has done. So Asaph begins his psalm by doing what? He begins it by crying out to God in prayer. And he admits and admitting his doubts and he concludes, he ends up in this place where he acknowledges his deliverer. It's possible you guys are, you know, we're pretty young here tonight. And when I say we, I mean this group because I'm as young, I think. Um, maybe you've never been in as severe a situation as the one that ASAP was dealing with. Maybe you have. I feel like I, I still feel like I'm in the middle of one myself. If you haven't, I, I feel like I can say this with, with about 100% certainty that you will face something like this. It's the nature of living in a fallen world and a fallen creation. And it's, it's in that time that you'll need this psalm. I've needed this psalm. Guys, I've been to this psalm, I don't want to say hundreds of times, it's like dozens of times since my dad died. You're going you're gonna to need to go to this psalm. You're going to need to read this. You're going to need to remember that, that God's not impressed when you hide your doubts, that you need to admit those to him. And, and let that lead you to a place where you acknowledge the one who can deliver you from that difficulty. <clears throat> For a second, and uh, let's return to that financial illustration I talked about in the beginning. In the middle of a financial crisis, stocks are falling, bonds are undervalued, companies that, <clears throat> I mean, we, maybe, maybe you didn't think, we, I always thought would never, ever fall. GM is going to declare bankruptcy. And investors are people who, who invest in the stock market. They're right to be skittish about rates of return, right? Promised rates. It's right to be skittish. And this is a time when those people who, who wrote those legalese about how past performance is not indicative of future results, they're grateful for that fine print disclaimer. But listen, this is so important. God doesn't need any disclaimer like that. With, with God, his past promises are a guarantee of future results. His past performance, not the guys, not just in scripture, although certainly, man, there's a that would be where I put most of my weight. His past performances we see in the Old Testament and the New, as well as if you just meditate on the things he's done in your life, that's a guarantee of what will be in the future. He, he has absolutely proven himself faithful in the past, in the pages of scripture and in our lives. And despite current trials, you may 
be facing or, or trials you may face. He, he's faithful now. And I can, I know I can say this with absolute assurance, with no doubt, with no qualifiers, that he will be faithful in the future. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the psalm. Uh, thank you for the, the real men you chose to write your, your scripture and the real struggles you allow us to see, whether it's uh, in the life of Asaph or David or other men who, who had real uh, doubts and, and struggled with those, always, though, turning to a place where they acknowledged you and your power to deliver and redeem. Lord, help, help us to understand that truth, even in the most difficult of times that you are faithful. You know, we can't see you, you're faithful. Lord, help us to return to those things that we know to be true, like Asaph did, those character qualities of you that never, ever change. Thank you so much that you're a God who doesn't change, who's the same now as you were in the day when Asaph wrote this song. Lord, help, help this truth remain in our hearts for for any of us, anybody here who's going, going through a difficult time, help this to be a, a comfort and an encouragement to them. And for anybody who, who has not gone through a time like this, but, but may in the future, Lord, help them to remember you and your faithfulness what you, what you did in the past your past promises and your past actions tell us what you will be in the future thank you Lord